morning, everybody. So glad to be here again with you two weeks in a row. It's awesome. I love it. Getting to continue on here in our series in Luke. So when I was in high school, I liked stirring the pot. That was just kind of who I was. I had my long hair and my skinny jeans, and I just liked making people feel uncomfortable. And so I did everything I could to make this happen. So when I was in high school, I I found the most controversial shirt I had ever seen. I was like, yes, that's the best. I'm going to wear this so proudly. And it was so controversial that I would have people walk up to me and lecture me for 20 minutes about how terrible it was. Or I'd have someone walk up and just give me a high five like, yes, I get it. That's awesome. Sounds like a pretty good conversation starter, doesn't it? So the reason it was so controversial is because in big, bold, red letters on the front, it said, I hate religion. Yeah. And by the way, I, was a, I loved Jesus at the time. But I had this shirt that, that said, I hate religion. And the reason I bought this shirt and I wore it so proudly is because I wanted to make sure that everyone knew it isn't about religion. It's about a relationship. That's what I was trying to get at. But that's pretty controversial, right? Trying to get people to that point with, with this crazy shirt. But what I was trying to say is it's, it's not about the practices and what we do that matter. It's about our relationship with our incredible God who gave up everything for us. I was pretty extra special in high school, wasn't I? Yeah. Always trying to cause a ruckus and be so crazy that threw off the system. Fight the power of false doctrines and theology. Now, even though that shirt was the wrong way to go about it, and there are aspects to religion, there are aspects to religion that are good, like we're going to see here in a bit. But there's still truth in what I was trying to get across as a punk kid. The truth is the fact that it is not about religion, but relationship. Again, can't emphasize enough. I went about it all the wrong way. But as we're going to see today, Jesus points to this very truth. And it's a reminder for each of us that we can, in our day-to-day lives, fall into this trap of religion over relationship. So you might be thinking to yourself, so, okay, that's great, but I've put my faith and trust in Christ. I, I know it's not by work so that no one can boast. And if this is you, praise God. But even in this true faith and trust, has there been a time in your life where the religion or checking the boxes has trumped a relationship? Doing things for the sake of just doing them. I've experienced this religion over relationship conundrum several times through my life as a believer. Walk in the doors on Sunday. Okay, God, box checked. I'm here. I got up when I didn't want to. I put on my collared shirt. I did what I was supposed to to make you happy. Okay, God, I read my Bible today. That's another check mark. Again, I did what I was supposed to. Okay, God, I prayed. That's box three checked. I'm doing pretty good today. Now, now God, I want you to hear this. I, I gave that homeless lady over there some money. So that's a triple check, right? Okay, I've stored up some brownie points. I'm good for a while. 
And most of the time when I've been in this place, it was because I lost sight of the truth of who God is. I, I lost sight of the truth of what Jesus did for me and the truth about what following him looks like. It's not about religion. Where it's rituals and things to do, it's about relationship. See, that it's, it's not about going to church, but God giving us other believers to fellowship with, like we're doing this morning, to serve with worship and song, opening his words, to understand him better. And in this, we're building our relationship with him. It's not just a ritual of praying, but being able to commune with the God of all creation. We get to have an intimate, personal relationship with him. It's not about checking the box of reading the Bible, but him speaking to us through his living and active words. It's not about religion, but relationship. So on Friday in our preaching collective, Dan asked some uh, artificial intelligence to define between religion and relationship. I did think it actually did a pretty good job defining it, just to help us better understand what we're going to be looking at this morning. Said this, one key difference between religion and relationship is that religion tends to focus more on external practices and beliefs, while relationship focuses more on internal attitudes and personal experiences. Religion often involves following a set of prescribed rituals and practices while relationship emphasizes personal connection and inner transformation. Quote from some robot. So in this, I don't want you to hear me say, like I did in high school, that religion in the proper context is bad. I took it to the extreme. That's not what I'm saying. Because there's things that we do in church as believers that are the good version of religion. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. So there are beautiful aspects to it when it's put in the proper context. The problem is, as we're going to see today, there is the reality that a lot of times religion overshadows relationship. We're going to walk through and talk through religion when it's handled improperly. But in this, we're going to see Jesus points us to the truth of who he is. As we dig into these verses, I want us all to be thinking through ways that we in our lives have put religion over relationship. How have we done that in our own lives? What boxes are we checking? Even this morning as we're sitting here, what boxes are we checking that make it about doing something versus being with the one true king? Are there areas where we see ourselves as so pure and righteous that it becomes about us losing sight that we are all messed up, decrepit sinners that desperately need a savior? What improper thinking is Jesus trying to help us see that needs correction today? This morning that we're going to see... In the midst of the Pharisees and scribes' lack of understanding, seeing their religion, their righteousness and holiness as the standard, that Jesus takes the opportunity to correct improper thinking and to show what it looks like to follow him. 
He takes time to teach and reestablish what had been lost over time. God's true heart for people. His desire for people to learn and to grow. Understanding his holiness and our brokenness and his power over all of it. So the Pharisees and the scribes, yes, were self-righteous. Yes, they were conceited. But hear me say this. They weren't the bad guys. They were just as lost as each of us are without Jesus. Believing things, standing up for things they thought were truth, when in reality were a twisted version of the law where humanity and brokenness were on display. So Jesus, in every aspect of his ministry, is fulfilling what humanity could not. He's correcting and resetting what sinful people had broken. Showing what following him looks like. Not the religion of it, but the relationship. I think it can be easy for us to throw the Pharisees under the proverbial bus, especially as we're going through this passage today. Seeing all the things that they're saying and doing and, and correcting. Why are they always questioning Jesus? Why are they so out of touch, standing up for incorrect truths? Why do they scoff at the sinners Jesus is with? And the list just goes on. But the truth is, in our lives as Christians, we can potentially be those Pharisees and scraps. Putting religion over relationship. So we're going to see this concept played out all through these verses with the structure for, for today being slightly different than usual. As we're going to be starting off with the very first verses and the very last verses together. So this is going to be chapter 5, 27 through 28, and 6, 12 through 16 combined. And the reason I'm doing this is because from these verses, the bookends of the passage, we see the people Jesus was calling. We see the broken men stuck in religion but pulled out into relationship, which illuminates the rest of the section that we're going to be studying with the overarching theme of Jesus pointing to a relationship. So I want us to see today, it's on the screen, again, 527 through 28, 612 through 16, those Jesus called, those Jesus called. 529 through 32, those Jesus came to save. 533 through 39, the truth about fasting. And 6, 1 through 11, the truth about the Sabbath. Called, saved, fasting, Sabbath. With the incredible reminder that Jesus is Lord over all of it. Each of these pointing to, if you haven't caught it yet, religion over, relationship over religion. All right, let's pray. Lord God, um, thank you again for this time to uh, just be here to worship you in song, to worship you in, in studying your word. God, I pray that through this time, God, you would uh, not only encourage us with just the truth of you being Lord over it all, but God, that you would point out the areas that need correction in our life, that you're lovingly pointing to that we might be seeing as just box checking, not truly seeing who you are in it and the reason we do the things we do. 
God, we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't yet, please open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, again, starting in verse 27. It says this, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So the first two verses that we're going to see on people Jesus called is right on the heels of last week's sermon. It's right on the heels where we saw Jesus doing the unthinkable. He did the unthinkable by healing that leprous man because he reached out and touched him. And then he forgave the paralytic sin. He did that before physically healing him. So both of these accounts, Jesus makes it super clear who he is and what he came to do. He's God over it all, who forgives sins, who's come to heal us leprous people of the terrible disease we've been cursed with being sin. And from this, Luke takes us straight into an account. It, it doesn't even skip a beat. It goes right into the account of a tax collector named Levi, or as we all know him mostly by, which is Matthew. So in Jesus' upside-down actions, he does something unbelievable again. Previously, he's claiming to be God by forgiving sin. Then he approaches a tax collector. So tax collectors at the time were some of the worst kind of people, according to the Bible and just history documentation as a whole. The reason that people thought this way about them is because they would rip people off. They would do this to get more money for themselves. They would charge people more than they were supposed to. These men were looked at as some of the most sinful people because not only did they rip people off, they also worked for Herod, who in turn worked for the Roman government. So aligning them with people that stand against what the Jews believed. So this being the case, it would have been, it would have been an unheard of act for Jesus to ask this man to follow him and be his disciple. But Jesus makes a massive point that we're going to see in more detail here in a little bit. That he didn't come for the religious, righteous people who thought they had it all together, but the broken sinner in need of a Savior. So when we take this section to its bookend, we see the same pattern from Jesus calling the most obscure people to follow him. And not just follow him, but to be his closest followers, his apostles. So if you want to turn over to chapter 6, verse 12. Ways. We all need him. And these men are the proof in that pudding. Levi wasn't trying his best to be a better person when Jesus came to him. He was in his brokenness. And all Jesus says is, follow me. He doesn't say, hey, hey, Levi, you, I want you to follow me, but first, go get clean. I want you to fix yourself. All the problems you have, you need to fix those before you come to me. That's not what he says. That's not what he says to Levi. It's not what he says to the other disciples. He says, follow me. 
And from that, they left their old sinful ways behind. From that point forward, desiring to follow Jesus, knowing what he had come to do. And in this, it's such a cool thing to see that after he calls them, like we're going to see momentarily, he doesn't just leave them high and dry. He doesn't just say, okay, follow me, now let's get going. He gives them examples of how to follow him, how to have this relationship with him. He shows the disciples, and also, I want you to hear this, he shows the disciples and also the pious religious leaders at the time who he is and how to follow him. Showing the difference between religion and relationship. Taking us from those who were called to the next section, starting in 29, those he came to save. So we have the called first section, 29, those he came to save. Starting in verse 29, 529. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Levi's very first move, after leaving his life behind of sinfulness and what he was doing, the very first thing he does to serve Christ was throw him a party. It's like, Jesus, man, you did what you just did for me. You, you called me out of it. I'm going to throw you a party. And not just that, I'm going to invite all of my tax collector friends so that they too can see for real who this Jesus is. I think this is such a great thing, such a great scene because from the moment that Levi puts his faith and trust in Christ, he does what? He wants to share the good news of what just happened. He's already on fire. He wants his friends to know who were lost like he was to see Jesus for who he is. Another piece to this is that it says in this scene, in this party, while they're all hanging out, Jesus and his disciples aren't just standing around. It says they were reclining at the table. So in that culture, to recline at the table meant complete comfort. Not only were Jesus and the disciples with them, they were comfortable around them. So the religious leaders see this, and as per usual, they're not happy about it. They're not happy about it because they were putting their religion over the truth of a relationship. So over the centuries, from the time of the establishment of the law, there were several aspects to it that were twisted by man, not what God had intended to point people to in the law. Creating this weird offshoot of religion, of works and things they had to do. So the reason that the Pharisees were so up in arms here is because they thought that consorting with outcasts like tax collectors at any level was treachery. It's just treachery. How dare you hang out with these unclean people? Now this Jesus is not only talking to them, but he's comfortably reclining with them. 
Their perspective was that the holy should only be with the holy. The righteous should not blemish themselves with the trash that should be chucked in the dumpster because these people would make them unclean. Just as Jesus put his hand on the leper, he is making clean. He is not becoming unclean. As I said at the beginning, though, we, we need to remember that the Pharisees aren't the bad guys here. They're just misinformed, confused people that have lived one way for so long that they, too, need to be pointed to truth. Seeing what a relationship versus religion model looks like. So Jesus answers them here, again, saying, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Jesus didn't come to be with the people that think they have it all together. Because they don't see a need to be healed. They think they're good to go. He came for the broken and the downtrodden, the ones who see their brokenness and know that they need fixing. And Jesus is the only one that can do that. He's come to call sinners to repentance. This is such a great picture Jesus is painting for us here. Teaching not only his disciples, but the Pharisees and us that he came for all. Because none is righteous, no, not one. Pointing to each person in that room and us. The need to repent of our sinfulness. So for the Pharisees, repent of what they thought was righteousness. When in truth it was just religion. Seeing people as lesser because they didn't look like or sound like them. But sometimes I can fall into this trap too. Sometimes seeing people like the Pharisees did. Avoiding people that might be different than me. I'm not proud to say it, but sometimes it is true. Walking down the road, I'm sure some of you experienced this. Walking down the road, downtown Fort Collins. Inevitably, some guy is going to run up to you screaming at the sky, wearing rags, Asking for cigarettes, asking for money, and my first instinct in my flesh is just avoid eye contact. Just like, I'm just going to beeline this way, okay? Just, if I keep my head down, like, he, he won't look at me, he won't talk to me. Just go about my day, because that man is unclean. I'll probably get something from him if I get too close. So I should just probably just get away, living my life out in the context of religion. Because I'm checking the Christian boxes, right? I'm at church. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm fasting. I'm tithing. Whatever it is. But when it comes down to being the hands and feet of Christ, yeah, I'm good. No thanks. But studying this passage has reminded me of my flesh in this matter. Because again, it puts me in the same shoes as the Pharisees. Seeing people that don't fit our model, that don't look like us and sound like us. So obviously they're unclean, they're unworthy of our attention. But Jesus changes the whole landscape of this idea by pointing to the fact that not only should we communicate with people that might seem different than us, that might seem unclean or broken or unworthy, but we should desire to go to them. We should desire to talk to them, even maybe like Jesus did, get to a point of being comfortable with them to show the love of Jesus and hopefully get the chance to point to what Jesus came to do. Point 
sinners to repentance as we so desperately need to. We all need the great physician. We're all broken, righteous or not. Pharisees don't stop here, though. While the party's still raging, they take time to ask Jesus even more questions, trying to get him to slip up. Because he keeps going against their religion. He keeps pushing against it, taking us to the third section in our text, the truth about fasting. Called, saved, fasting. Section 3, starting in verse 33. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So fasting is an incredible time. It's a great time of removing something in our lives. Traditionally, more often than not, it's food to focus fully on the Lord. This gives an opportunity of just deep prayer and intercession, talking to the God of the universe, beseeching him about anything and everything that might be thrown at you, that's thrown at those around you, just the world as a whole, and the burden for Christ to restore and come back. At this time in Jesus' ministry, fasting looked different, though, especially with the spin of religion that the day put on it, because this was a pious endeavor for the religious leaders. This was a mourning and a weeping and a gnashing of teeth, usually associated with something happening where there was just brokenness. But more often than not, this was a display for the world to see how holy and worthy they were. With Jesus taking it to a different level. Lovingly teaching them the difference between religion and relationship. The reason behind the fasting. So the Pharisees point out that John's disciples are just so much better. Their disciples are so much better because look how holy they are. Man. They are beating themselves into submission. Don't you see that? They're, they're weeping and they're mourning out loud for the sake of their holiness. But what was lost in translation for them was the purpose, which is seeking the Lord, praying for him to come, praying for, at that time, their Savior to arrive. But in this moment, we see another direct point to Jesus being God, his deity. Jesus said, why should they be fasting? He's talking about the bridegroom. Why should they be fasting? Because I'm here. Fasting is supposed to be thinking and processing the coming Savior. Like, come Lord Jesus. He hadn't come at that time. And he's saying, I'm here. The one you should be seeking in your prayer and fasting has arrived. So celebrate, eat, drink, be merry. And then Jesus continues on making his point even more clear with the illustration of the bridegroom. He's here now, but soon for them, he's, he's going to die. He's going to, to do what he came to do, living his life out perfectly. He's going to be beaten and battered, sent to the cross to die. The terrible death that we all deserve, rising again, defeating the grave. So if we put our faith and trust in him, we're rescued from this disease of sin. 
And the point he's getting at with this first idea prior to the parable we're about to see is that once he's gone, we again will fast. We're going to beseech the Lord in prayer and fasting, praying for the issues of the world. But more importantly, looking to the Savior who is going to come again. Praying for him to return in joy, knowing our salvation has come through Christ. There's a difference between then and now. Because, yeah, prior to Christ coming, there was a sense of pain and hopelessness because their Savior hadn't come yet. They knew that he was coming, but hadn't experienced what he would come to do. But we have the joy knowing he has come. And the joy knowing that he is going to come again. So for us today in this room, thinking about the difference between, again, religion and relationship, if that's not seared into your head yet, I don't know what I'm supposed to do to make that happen. But the question here is, how do you see fasting? Talking about the the checkboxes in our life, the religion versus the relationship, how do we see fasting? Do we see it as a beautiful relational time communicating with the Lord, or is it just another thing that Christians do? Is it just another way to make sure God is good with us? I'm really excited because it's apropos that this passage is where it's at, because one month from today, we're going to be doing our annual 24 hours of prayer and fasting. It's an awesome time that we as a body are going to come together and pray for 24 hours. You can go on Realm and sign up for a time slot, an hour time slot, and we together are going to experience this, this relationship with our Lord, coming to him, beseeching him for the world, for those around us, and begging him to return soon. So if you haven't yet, if you haven't seen it yet, make sure to go sign up for that. If you have any questions, you can talk to Kelly. Or you can talk to me or or anybody, I guess. No, just talk to Kelly. So in this, he continues on with a parable to bring this topic even more to light. Verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new And the peace from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst in the skins, burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. So Jesus ends this section on fasting with a parable. Bring out two main points. Number one, being the new patch on the old garment. You don't want to put a new piece of fabric on old because it's going to fall apart. It's going to be pulled apart. And in the end, it just doesn't work. So the metaphor here is bringing to play the new covenant versus the old covenant. This is helping them and us see that the old is gone and the new has come. Jesus, as I said before, did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. The old was set in place and necessary for the time that it was instituted, but the new has come. And he's telling these people, this isn't a mix and match kind of thing here. 
It's not like take your religion and plop it on top of the new. It doesn't work. It's going to tear itself apart. But the new upside-down kingdom being instituted is the way that Jesus did it, the way he came, what he came to do. Next is metaphor number two in this parable, old wineskins and new. So when fermenting new wine, if you were to put in, if you were putting new wine into old wineskins that had lost its elasticity, it would burst. In the fermenting process, it expands, and if it doesn't have the elasticity, it's not going to work. The old does not contain the new. Altogether, these are both trying to, again, bring out the point that the old and the new are not mixed together. What Jesus brings changes the whole landscape of the world as they knew it. It changed the way people should, should be seen, how things like fasting should be handled, how it's not about religion, but relationship, taking us to the next segment in Jesus' loving correction and teaching how to follow him, bringing us into our last section, Jesus teaching them and us the difference between religion and relationship in regards to the Sabbath. So we had called, saved, fasting, and now we're in the Sabbath. Chapter 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So as I said at the beginning, the Pharisees, because of passed down traditions, were really good at twisting the law. They were good at twisting it, and it was not actually what God said. So Deuteronomy 23, 24 through 25 talks about the fact that it is actually okay to pluck grain from a field on Sabbath, as long as it's not taken down by an instrument like a scythe or something like that. But over the centuries of the manipulation of the law, it was well known that the Pharisees saw it sin to do anything they deemed as work on the Sabbath, including picking grain to eat it. So Jesus here, he makes a power play. This time, not just calling himself God, but now he's saying he's Lord over the law. Specifically in this case, over the Sabbath that the Pharisees worked so hard to keep controlled. Right after this, Jesus brings up an account in 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6, where David, having authority as king, does something unlawful and eats the bread of the presence. This was supposed to only be for the priests. So this would have been a big no-no at the time. Jesus is basically saying, if, G if David had the authority to do what he did as king, how much more authority do I have? He's, complete, he's claiming complete lordship over the Sabbath. He is Lord over all, bringing in and instituting the new covenant. He is the Lord over the so-called religion that they had instituted. So Jesus for them then and us today, reminding and teaching truth while pointing to who he truly is. 
He's above all and through all. Even the law is beneath him. He is the one who provides. Jesus rules over and interprets what the Sabbath is. And anything else religion tries to tweak, he is over it. He is Lord of the Sabbath, taking us to the second section in the Sabbath, two sections in the Sabbath. The first one, establishing his lordship. The second one, his lordship on Sabbath and healing. Six, verse six. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to destroy it. And after looking around at them all, he said, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do with Jesus. So in this very last section for this morning, on the heels of Jesus' proclamation of his lordship, we're thrust into another scenario where religion is front and center for the Pharisees. And Jesus is trying to lovingly correct them and remind us of the truth of who he is. So at the time, as we saw in the previous account, work was forbidden on the Sabbath. To the point that the Pharisees would rather let someone be hurt and broken just not to work. Jesus changes the dynamic here. Seeing the poor man with the withered hand, having compassion on him, Jesus, again, breaks what their religion would frown upon. He does an incredible thing that not only shows his love for people, but also his power. He says, is it lawful to do good or do harm? So you notice in this, the Pharisees are silent here. I don't think they could care less what Jesus was saying. But they were just eyeing him. They just wanted to see if he was going to mess up. Like, this guy keeps messing up. He keeps breaking our laws. Let's see what he does now. And I think this is just such a, a beautiful thing, what Jesus does, because he doesn't break any of their rules right here. But he still breaks their rules. And it makes him furious that he does this, because he doesn't even touch the guy. He doesn't reach out his hand to him, which... For Jesus to do that would have been work, which would have been unlawful because he's touching him and healing him. But he doesn't do that. He just says, hey, guy, hold out your hand. Again, that's not unlawful. And he healed him with not a single bit of work involved, pointing even more to the truth of who he is. But also that he cares more about people and helping than what day of the week it is. Doesn't matter what day it is, how inconvenient it is, Jesus is teaching us as Lord that people are more important than religion. People are more important than traditions. Throughout all, Jesus gives us a clear picture of who he's come for the broken, messed up sinners in need of a Savior. So, every one of us, he called the unloved, the unworthy, the untouchable like the leper. He's given us unworthy, unclean sinners a chance to put our faith and trust in him, following him. 
He shows us through fasting, picking of grain, and healing on the Sabbath that it's not about religion but relationship. And that relationship is with the Lord over all. So as we close this morning, I want to remind us of the beginning of our time together. Asking the question, in your own life, in my life, are we putting religion over relationship? And I would challenge you this week to think through everything that you're doing. Think through your prayer life, reading your Bible, fasting, the way you talk to people and approach people. Think through why you're doing it. Are you simply checking a box, doing what you think you're supposed to? Or do you see the truth of the relationship that we've been given? It's not about works. But we do these things because of our relationship, because we want to honor him with our lives. Remember, last time for the thousandth time. It's not about religion, but relationship. Let's pray. God, again, thank you so much uh, just to be able to study your word. Thank you for the beautiful truth that you are reminding us of today. God, I pray if there's anyone in here that um, has fully put religion over a relationship, that haven't truly understood what it means to be in a relationship with you, God, that you would help them see clearly today. God, that you would open their eyes to who you are. Love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.